The reading is from Psalm 57. Um, it's when David's being pursued by King Saul and he's in a cave. Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions, I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp words, swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I am bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the people. For great is your love reaching to the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And the words of Jesus, uh, Matthew 6, verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so how, how should we pray? That's, that's the question behind this kind of four-part series we're doing in Lent. Um, it's a question that people of all faiths and none find themselves asking at times. How should we pray? And, you know, it's the question that the disciples found themselves asking Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, who, who often went off by himself to spend time praying. To which, um, you know, he responded to their question with the, the most famous prayer of all, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I was in the blue school last week, um, leading the kind of worship there. I asked the year six tech team, um, Austin, did you used to be on the year six tech team? Back in the day, before when you were at the blue school, yeah. So, what well, Austin will know, Austin's running our tech now. That's all you need to know, basically. The, the, the year six tech team run the show, okay? Um, and I just sort of asked them, I said, do you think you could kind of put the Lord's Prayer up on the screen? And they said, well, you know, well, sure, but we don't need to, because everyone knows it. You know, so in the 21st century, in, you know, a post-Christian society, albeit in a church school, 400 kids, um, some as young as five, all know this prayer. Um, Pete Gregg, who wrote this book, um, How to Pray, um, from which we're sort of taking this four-step approach to prayer, says that the evidence is that um, 300 years after the Enlightenment, the world is considered to be becoming more religious, not less. And that prayer in its different forms is, is almost a universal practice. When you look at the surveys, but what sets um, apart the prayers of those who follow Jesus from those kind of just reaching out in a moment 
of crisis, perhaps, to an unseen, kind of unknowable power, is that we know to whom we're praying. We know he loves us. We know that he welcomes our prayers. In fact, he expects us to pray for our own sakes, as well as his mission in the world. You know, back in the Garden of Eden, the kind of fundamental orientation of people was to be in relationship with their loving creator. And where it all goes wrong is when that relationship is kind of broken. And regardless of how you understand that Genesis story, the implication is clear. Um, to quote Frankenstein's monster, because, you know, why not? Um, alone, bad, friend, good. Um, I, I was going to put a picture up on the screen for that. And then I went through it and I suddenly realized throwing up Frankenstein's monster unexpectedly in the middle of a sermon. Anyway, it just didn't. Um, <laughs> hmm. So the point is, we are not made to be alone and we are made to be in relationship with our creator and with one another. And of course, the, the primary means of experiencing that relationship with God is prayer. Um, in the Alpha course, anyone who's done that, Nikki Gumbel says the most important thing in the Christian life is prayer. Prayer is the most important thing in the Christian life. So that's why we're spending a few weeks on this topic now. Um, it's not just a one-off. You, know, you don't just do a four-part series on uh, prayer and then sit back and say, okay, I've done that now. Um, I've completed prayer, boss level. Um, prayer is a lifetime journey towards God that will end, will be fulfilled, I guess, with us meeting him face to face. That's where the conversation ends or continues. So it's, um, you know, it's important to say, I think, that I'm, I'm either the best or the worst person to preach on this subject because I am not a great prayer warrior myself. You know, I know that was actually number one uh, on the job spec for this post when I applied for it. It said somebody for whom prayer is a priority both personally and in the church. That's what the advert said. And uh, I was honest in that interview. Um, I know many, many people who are more faithful and experienced and passionate about prayer than me. And yes, some of them are even vicars. <laughs> but what I lack in, um, I guess, not teaching on this subject as an expert, hopefully I gain in what I share being relatable <laughs> to anyone who struggles to pray or to pray as often or as kind of well as they think they should, although praying well or not well, I, I think is an unhelpful idea because kind of by definition, all prayer is good. So by way of a reminder, we're looking at um, prayer as, like I said, this sort of four-part process using these, these four letters, P-A, blah, P, P-R-A-Y. Um, and these stand for pause, rejoice, ask, and yield. And last week we uh, introduced a few actions for these, for the uh, kinesthetic learners amongst us. Um, so uh, repeat after me, pause. So we've got like the, the, that's meant to be like the two, the two, the pause sign, right? Two, two, so I'd say pause, rejoice, ask, yield. Okay, so we just do that one more time. So let's say this together, pause, rejoice, ask, yield. Very good, well done. Um, and last week, Rach Wooden spoke to us about our need uh, particularly in the world that we live in today, to pause, to stop, to just wait a moment as we come to pray, to still ourselves, 
as we pray. And um, this week we're looking at rejoicing, which I guess is a kind of a concept, an idea that includes um, you know, reverence and thanksgiving, adoration. Those are all words that we associate with that. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pete Gregg says this, the way we view God changes everything about everything. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you've sent a text or a WhatsApp or an email about someone to that person by accident. Um, it happened to me fairly recently. Um, my first reaction was to think, oh gosh, what did I write? Um, and worry about what that might do to my relationship with them. And um, as, it, as it turned out, it was fine. Um, and Archdeacon Richard was very forgiving. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, and let's be honest, I'm, you know, I wouldn't like to feel that anything that I wrote about someone, I couldn't defend to their face. But, you know, nevertheless, I, I realized I probably would have phrased things not quite as I did, but probably would have couched my point in, in slightly softer or more developed context, which I rapidly did after. Anyway, <laughs> another example, I guess, is if you've ever been on one of those phone calls, may, maybe this doesn't happen to you, but a phone call where it takes you a while to work out who you're talking to. Now, this doesn't happen as much with mobile phones because you just pick them up and you might see the number. Um, but this has happened, it actually happened to me a few times last year, particularly when you're a new vicar. And, you know, you've got lots of people say with the same name, you know, got, and, and somebody rings up and they say, and, and actually it's only after a couple of minutes you realize who you're really talking to. Um, and it changes your understanding of that conversation completely. You thought you were having one conversation, you realize you're having a completely different one. When we... When it comes to prayer, we have to start by remembering who we're talking to. That's what Tyler Staten said. And that's what the opening line of Jesus' prayer is all about. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's described here is kind of classically what commentators say are kind of two key aspects of the character of the God we pray to. So first, God is holy. And, um, you know, in a minute, we'll look at the you know, remarkable intimacy that God offers his people, his, his tenderness, his love uh, that he has for us. But our starting point has to be recognizing God's holiness, his otherness. His name is to be hallowed, which means we need to honor him. There's no getting away from this. If we don't recognize how big eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, completely pure God is, then we're starting in the wrong place. This is the God who we see in uh, visions in the Bible, enthroned in splendor, surrounded by heavenly beings who cry day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's the one before whom one day every knee will bow. God's holiness is frightening. It's the reason that um, sin is such a problem. Corruption just can't exist near him. It's swallowed up. It's burnt away. You know, even uh, this week, those of us who are reading Luke and Acts together, there's about 18 of us who are doing that through Lent. And um, a couple of days ago, we heard the couple, you know, that terrible story from the early church where two members are literally struck dead for being dishonest in the context of this kind of fledgling church movement. Uh, it's kind of a reminder that this new, this new church is, is the new temple of God's holy presence. So part one, standing in awe before God, is the essential foundation 
I'd argue, for rejoicing, for true rejoicing. Part two, then, is to recognize you know, the wonder that this holy God um, tells us to call him Father, Abba, Daddy, the familiar name that little children used to use for their earthly fathers when Jesus walked the earth. And yes, I, you know, I, I get that for some of you relating to God as Father may be complicated by your experiences of your own earthly father. But, you know, this is one of the strongest images of caring relationships we have as humans. And, and, and note, God also uses the image of mother, you know, to describe his relationship with his people. That's why, you know, on Mothering Sunday, we rejoice and we give thanks for our earthly mothers, for who they are, all they've done for us, but also in what they teach us of God's love and care for us. However imperfectly we all do that as parents. God does it perfectly. You know, I understand that the word most often used in the New Testament to describe God's people is not, is not Christians. That was a, a word that came along relatively lately, or relatively late. But um, the word beloved, that's how the Christians were described. These are who, this is who we are to God. We are uh, his beloved. We are defined as objects of his love. And, you know, I was trying to think of a, a kind of a pithy illustration of God's intimate and emotional love for us. But then I realized that Jesus created that pithy illustration himself of a father whose youngest son rejects him and wishes him dead and metaphorically kind of spits on him and walks out taking half his property and walking away, only to come back with his tail between his legs when he's lost everything through his own fault, expecting a harsh, perhaps deserved reaction from his father only to find his dad sacrificing all sense of propriety and dignity to come flying out of the house down the road at the first sight of him to embrace him to kiss him to welcome him to lavish him with his love the god who is holy whose name is to be hallowed invites us to call him daddy you know, with the kind of trust that a, a little child might have implicitly in their father and there in our these kind of twin perspectives as we come to pray um, you know like the mystery caller who you don't know who you're talking to it only starts to make sense when we realize who we're talking to it's by putting those two things together then so god's almost kind of frightening goodness and his intimate love that we gain this perspective i think of rejoicing um, remember that's our r for today so how does that work how do those things add up to that why is it important i guess for us to hold this attitude of rejoicing and praise in our prayer lives now the psalms are interesting aren't they in many ways they're a sort of prayer book and we can look at them and learn a lot about how to pray um, but some of the content is pretty shocking isn't it um some of what we might charitably call you know cries for justice in the psalms are basically unveiled demands for god to curse and destroy enemies which i um you know have to say some of those words have felt um all the more relatable these past weeks god punish the wicked protect the innocents overthrow the evil rulers may they lie in the very graves that they have dug for others 
These are all sentiments from the Psalms. And, you know, the Psalms of Jesus' prayer book as well. He quoted them. He, on the cross, he invokes the, the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we heard in Psalm 57, David crying out to God in what was clearly very unideal circumstances. He was on the run. King Saul was openly trying to kill him. And David prayed, have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I'll take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell amongst ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Welcome to Twitter, everyone. So like a lot of Psalms, and, uh, and, you know, as we've seen in the book of Daniel recently, I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record on this one, what we see is that much of prayer in the Bible comes from a place of deep suffering and pain and anguish and fear and loss. That's the reality for God's people more often than not, um, and, and for followers of Jesus. But then look how the um, Psalm ends. Are these words big enough? Can you read those? We, let's read these out together. Um, awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. You know, those are words spoken by David hiding in a cave, waiting to be killed. Um, to, you know, I don't know, I'd sort of apologize if this feels inappropriate, but if, if that doesn't strike home, think of people sitting in a, in a cellar in a basement in Ukraine right now, waiting, knowing these artillery strikes are coming. That's the context these words are spoken. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. What we're seeing is something really quite, countercultural in this world if you ask people why they rejoice if you ask me why i rejoice then the answer would nearly always be rooted naturally in circumstances good circumstances happy circumstances life liberty peace and plenty when life is good that's when i can rejoice but in the bible the source of rejoicing is not normally circumstance it's god's character it's who he is the loving Father in heaven, whose name is to be hallowed. What's changed between the early part of Psalm 57, when David is terrified, and then these later verses when he's rejoicing in God's goodness? That's what we'll just spend the last few minutes talking about. Rejoicing in prayer is, is not based on life being easy then. Is based on God being good, that he loves us and that he wants to be with us in every season of our lives. For us to know that we are not alone, that we are the beloved of God, uh, God who is love. So what we're seeing here is that rejoicing in prayer might sometimes be something that bubbles up spontaneously, but often it's an intentional choice that we make like David waiting for those armed men to enter the cave and kill him. Choosing to speak out 
words of praise and rejoicing and adoration to God. And we see the same thing from the early church, from some of the disciples praising God even as they are martyred. Someone pointed out recently that, you know, Paul always begins his letters with praise and rejoicing. But again, he wrote most, if not all of those letters, from the darkness of a prison cell. So typically rejoicing is a choice made in a hard place, not a natural overflow of our hearts. Um, Somebody, I think, called Johannes Hartle puts it like this. Praise is the conscious act of turning one's inward gaze to God and making his beauty and greatness more important than all the darkness and sorrows we face. So maybe you're like me. Maybe, um, you know, sometimes... I feel really ungrateful when coming to God in prayer. And then I feel guilty, of course, on top of it, because I have so much to be thankful for. But that's fine, because praise and rejoicing is more often than not about a choice rather than feelings. It's something we can choose. And notice how um, David talks to himself. Um, I haven't got it on here, but... Oh, yeah, we do. Awake my soul, he says. You know, one of the books that we read at um, bedtime with our boys, uh, sort of books helping pray. One of the pages talks about how we ought to talk to ourselves more and listen to ourselves less. In the Psalms, we often see the writers telling themselves what to think or do, telling, talking to their souls. And something we looked at a little bit um, in our series last time. And if you've ever stood in times of praise and worship thinking, I'm singing these words, but I'm not really feeling it in my heart. Well, then this is for you. You Praise and rejoicing in those half-hearted circumstances is not fraudulent. It's arguably a more pure form of worship. Even though I'm feeling this, I will still praise you. may surprise you to learn that when I lead worship, I am often not lost always in wonder, love, and praise. I'm often standing defiantly before God and uh, you, my brothers and sisters, thinking, I'm not feeling this, and yet I'm choosing, I will choose to praise you, my God. With every breath I can muster, I will rejoice in your goodness. Father in heaven, may my words hallow your name. And the, you know, just to come into land, the pause that Rach talked about last week, so we started with the P, the pause, I think that really part of the job of that pause is to set the scene for us making this choice. Even as we pause, we may recognize how we're coming, uh, you know, how we're feeling as we're coming to pray. Um, we might be feeling great and thankful, but we might be feeling frustrated, annoyed, angry, needy, in pain, maybe physical or emotional. And in the pause, we prepare ourselves to recognize who God is. And to praise him. And then before we bring our requests, which will, um, you know, by the way, he does want us to do, really. These aren't, you know, before we get to the ask next week, these aren't hoops that we have to jump through to please God, okay? Um, the, the pause and the rejoicing. We start by praising him, though, and we recognize his goodness and his love and his holiness. And for our own sake, we start by rejoicing in him. 
And that place of rejoicing, even in the difficult places, is what sets us up to be kind of honestly able to share what is on our hearts, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we're longing for um, to him in, in prayers of petition and intercession, which is what we're going to look at next Sunday.